Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You know, the Irish tell the story of a man who arrives at the gates of heaven and asks to be let in. St. Peter says, of course, just show us your scars. The man says, I have no scars. St. Peter says, what a pity. Was there nothing worth fighting for? We are called to find something in our lives worth fighting for. Something that unites the will of the spirit with the work of the flesh. Something that can help us lift up this nation and all its people to that place where the heart is without fear and the head is held high, where knowledge is free, where the world has not been broken up into fragments by narrow domestic walls, where words come out from the depths of truth and tireless striving stretches its arms towards perfection, where the clear stream of reason has not lost its way into the dreary desert sands of dead heaven, where the mind is led forward by thee into ever-widening thought and action into that heaven of freedom, dear Father. Let our country awake. At the forefront of every social justice movement, on the front lines of every march and demo, Hands clutching onto worn-down banners and homemade cardboard placards are young people. Young people who listened to that voice in their head, reminding us all of our duty to embrace our own optimistic political power in a world ravaged by hopelessness. Young people with excitingly naive energy full of hope and battle spirit. Young people who fell in love with the world around them and realised that it was worth fighting for. I'm Noga Levy Rappaport, a volunteer and organiser with the UK Student Climate Network, who have been responsible for organising the climate strikes across the UK for the past year and a half as part of the global Youth Strike for Climate campaign under Fridays for Future. Amongst other events and rallies, we organised the global climate strike that took place on September 20th, 2019, and was the largest climate mobilisation ever to take place in the UK. We are campaigning not just to decolonise and reshape the education system, to accommodate for the political and environmental ramifications of the climate crisis, as well as to enfranchise and empower young people. Most importantly, we're campaigning for a Green New Deal that centres a just transition for those on the front lines of ecological catastrophe and that directly tackles the structural inequalities that brought about the climate emergency. 
focusing on the UK's fair share of fighting the climate crisis and its historical responsibility in the battle for real climate justice. At its root, the climate crisis is a war being waged against the most vulnerable so that the richest can continue to line their pockets. But this truth about the fossil fuel industry, from their neo-colonialist techniques to their exploitation of people and politics in their search for eternal profit, has stayed hidden for so long, and we're still only scraping the surface of public awareness. But however daunting that challenge of education and change may seem, there is no room for compromise here. A crisis born of all the world's inequalities and perpetuated by them is a crisis that can only be resolved through paying back the debt owed. That is what it means to have ambitious climate plans, to have green recovery plans rooted in empathy for those struggling and direct support for those who are forced into precarious poverty, totally unprotected in the face of ecological catastrophe as a result of the UK's culture of exceptionalist greed. The crucial fall of capitalism through paying the UK's fair share as part of genuine empathetic climate ambition must be deliberately engineered to be a fall that can finally liberate those who have suffered under colonial powers and been trapped by the devastation of the climate crisis rather than a coronavirus fueled collapse that will crush us all underfoot. We have to rebuild society for the better. And that means implementing a transformative Green New Deal. The recovery plan must decarbonise the economy in a way that tackles inequality and enhances the lives of ordinary people, workers and communities. It should create thousands of new, well-paid, secure, unionised jobs across the country. We have to start investing in people and ensuring that the policies and investments for recovery don't just prop up the profits of the big banks and executives of corporations fueling climate change. We need to restructure public and private finance so that it redistributes power into the hands of people, workers and communities and support sectors that nourish our society, safeguarding our future. A safer, more equitable future that we want to envision can only come about when we build solidarity and community across borders. We can't leave anyone behind when we organise for a better future, especially as we fight against a pandemic. Anything we do now and in the longer term recovery must be with the aim of ending global injustices, conflict and environmental degradation and of guaranteeing human rights and free movement for all. From local communities to the world stage, we must organise, share solutions, share technology, transfer finance and redistribute wealth where it's needed. Only then can we truly achieve climate justice and reach that world we want. That was Noga Levy-Rappaport speaking about the urgent need for climate action. And before her, you heard the full-length recording of American actor Martin Sheen addressing the crowd at a Fire Drill Friday rally in Washington, D.C. back in January of this year. I'm Blaine Harrison from Mystery Jets, and this is episode nine of our podcast, Things Worth Fighting For. The reason we made this podcast was because we were inspired to create a safe space for amazing people from different backgrounds to share stories of activism and to shed some light on some of the biggest conversations of today, many of which have inspired the songs on our new album, A Billion Heartbeats. I hope you're holding up okay wherever you're listening to this. It's the middle of November 2020, two weeks into the second national lockdown here in the UK. And I'm speaking to you today from the tranquil setting of Mystery Jet's spiritual home on Eel Pie Island, where I'll be hiding out for the next month or however long lockdown lasts this time around. And the themes we're talking about on this episode are youth strikes and the environmental crisis. When many of us are children, we sit by our grandmother or our grandfather's side and we hear stories of what life was like when they were young. 
Often the tales we hear have a kind of comforting innocence about them, conjuring images which evoke simpler times. But frequently, they're also ones of hardship and resilience, of crossing oceans, of falling bombs, of rationing, or a lifetime of steady work and making sacrifices for their families. Growing up in the West, hearing these stories served to remind us how fortunate we were to have unrestricted access to the technological, cultural or geographical wonders of the modern world, and not to be living through a time when the world was at war with itself, or our future was in doubt. That is, until now. Like lots of you listening, I'm sure, I watched A Life on Our Planet recently, Sir David Attenborough's Netflix special, and I struggle to think of another person with more authority to speak on matters of our beloved Earth than the world's adopted grandfather himself. The film was made to accompany his memoir by the same name, which he describes as both his vision of the future and a witness statement following a career as a naturalist and broadcaster lasting nearly six decades. I found the film incredibly inspiring, but also hard to watch. Attenborough's documentary series like Planet Earth or Frozen Planet have long been favoured Sunday afternoon viewing, a kind of visual hug for those of us maybe nursing a sore head from the night before, or craving a reminder of the endless wonder of the natural world. In truth, Attenborough's been using his films to fire warning shots for our endangered planet since as far back as the early 1980s, but we haven't been listening. As a young man, he writes, I was out there in the wild, experiencing the untouched natural world, but it was an illusion. The tragedy of our time has been happening all around us, barely noticeable from day to day. This isn't just about saving the planet, this is about saving ourselves. To restore stability on our planet, we must restore biodiversity, the very thing which we have removed. We're replacing the wild with the tame. We must rewild the wild. Those words ring a particularly loud alarm bell right now when you view them through the lens of the pandemic we're going through. Attenborough goes on to explain that it's our ever-increasing encroachment into the natural world that's not only been responsible for threatening an estimated million species with extinction, but also for spreading up to a third of emerging diseases. Because whilst larger animals disappear as a result of poaching and destruction of their natural habitats, smaller pathogenic mammals such as bats and rodents multiply meaning a recipe for future outbreaks. Like the pandemic, one of the reasons I think the climate crisis has come about is because we think of ourselves as separate from the planet we're living on. Friends of the Earth is a great charity, but we're not friends of the Earth. We are the Earth. It's us. And if you look at what's killing the planet, it's actually very linked to what's bad for humans too. We perhaps first became detached from the planet during the agricultural and industrial revolutions, and in the information age, we're in danger of becoming detached from ourselves. Across varied cultures stretching back centuries, the Earth has long been thought of as our maternal mother. Whether it was Gaia, the primordial goddess from ancient Greek mythology, or Pachamama, the fertility deity worshipped by Andean people back in the times of the Incan Empire. The British painter Francis Bacon also described the Earth as a female body, but one who can be and has been repeatedly penetrated at will. That's a horrid image, but it's feeling increasingly like what we've allowed to happen over the past 100 years. We live in a world where oil is worth more than blood, where a tree is worth more lying on the ground, and a whale is worth more dead than swimming freely in the ocean. When I was at school, we were taught how our cans of Lynx Africa or Impulse were damaging the ozone layer, but the wider implications of the environmental disaster hadn't yet been explained to us. That's because until relatively recently, climate change is an issue which has consistently been kicked into the long grass. 
Global warming is nothing new. In the southern hemisphere, it's well known that Polynesian islands are at risk of disappearing beneath the ocean due to rising sea levels. And in the Himalayas, settlements are in danger of losing their water supplies because of glaciers melting. And the reason these people haven't been listened to is straight-up institutional discrimination. For more than 30 years, scientists have been warning of rising temperatures, with last year, 2019, the hottest since records began. In June, the Ministry of Defence confirmed temperatures are predicted to increase by 2.3 to 3.5 Celsius by 2100, despite the Paris Agreement to limit the global temperature rise to 1.5 Celsius based on cutting carbon emissions to net zero by 2050. And if we don't, we could be headed the way of the dinosaurs. Mainstream politics is too terrified to turn around to people and say we're going to have to change and you're not going to like it because they're deeply scared about losing the electorate. And that's why people are shutting down cities and gluing themselves to buildings because we're out of time. The first many people heard of Extinction Rebellion was when they blockaded five of London's bridges in November 2018, calling for the British government to declare a state of climate emergency. Their second campaign the following spring was on a whole different level and saw them set up camps in five prominent areas of central London, including an Oxford circus, where the surreal sight of a now iconic pink boat captured the headlines, boldly bearing the words, tell the truth. I spent some time visiting the different sites, listening to speeches and talking with protesters, and although they were very peaceful, there was a heavy feeling hanging in the air. A sort of unspoken sense that maybe all of this was too little, too late, and that when regular service resumed, the world would inevitably be free to revert back to its old ways. Occasionally, I would hear abuse or see aggravation from passers-by. And yet, a year on, many of those left fuming for running late on their morning commutes because of blocked roads are now working from home in their pyjamas, quite literally as a symptom of the very dangers groups like XR were trying to warn us about. From Greenpeace's famous rainbow warrior ship taking on the oil rigs in the North Sea to groups like Earth First in the eco-anarchist movement of the 80s, environmental organisations taking non-violent direct action to raise awareness of the harm being done to our planet is not a new phenomenon. And in the nature of decentralised grassroots movements, sometimes they get it wrong as in the instance where two ill-judged XR protesters climbed aboard an early morning commuter train at Canning Town, a service primarily used at that time by zero-hour key workers. But whilst the cartoon characterisation of eco-activists as tree-huggers and crusties is still as prevalent now as it ever was, being offended by the inconvenience or appearance of protest is a terrible reason to let the world burn. Today, inspiring figures like the US Democrat Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her radical legislation for the Green New Deal are helping change the face of green reform from a position of power within the system. Cortez, also known by her initials, AOC, was previously an activist herself and made history aged 29 as the youngest woman ever to serve in US Congress. The Canadian author Naomi Klein talks about there being three major fires in the world right now. The fire of the oncoming climate disaster, the fire of hatred, the forces which are separating us, and the fire of resistance, the coming together of movements to fight against the above. Whether social justice has been called for at a geopolitical level or in the streets, history has taught us that seldomly is one effective without the other. 
And as it turned out, the very month after Extinction Rebellion's pink boat was towed away from Oxford Circus, the UK became the first country in the world to declare a climate emergency. Throughout modern times, some of the most effective campaigns for positive change have been led by young people. From the American students who protested against segregation in the 1960s, to the Nobel Prize winner Malala Yousafzai, who persevered with her campaign for girls' rights to education in Pakistan, despite an assassination attempt by the Taliban when she was just 15. And then, of course, there's Greta Thunberg. Those early images of a 15-year-old Greta sat on her own outside the Swedish parliament from 2018 with her hand-painted placard reading School Strike for Climate, with a spark that ignited what would turn out to be one of the largest mass movements of young people in history. Over the following 18 months, Fridays for Future gatherings began taking place each week across the world, growing to huge, coordinated, multi-city protests involving over a million students each. This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. Yet, you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You say you hear us and that you understand the urgency. But no matter how sad and angry I am, I do not want to believe that. Because if you really understood the situation and still kept on failing to act, then you would be evil, and that I refuse to believe. You are failing us, but the young people are starting to understand your betrayal. The eyes of all future generations are upon you. And if you choose to fail us, I say we will never forgive you. The world is waking up, and change is coming whether you like it or not. Thank you. That was Greta's now historical address to the UN in New York at the Climate Action Summit in September of last year, to which she sailed from Plymouth on a voyage lasting 15 days in a boat equipped with solar panels and wind turbines to demonstrate her belief in the importance of cutting carbon emissions. Around the same time, Greta and the Fridays for Future movement were rapidly becoming a target for right-wing politicians, famously including then-President Trump. A put-down often heard in media coverage of the school strikes was You're too emotional. You don't understand the science. Stay in school. To which Greta responded Why would a child believe in a system that takes no action to protect its future? The manner in which she's been mocked by those angered by her pervasiveness or her message has been illuminating of the general sense of shifting blame and apathy towards the climate emergency in the wider world. And it only further highlights the incredible weight behind her actions, which have achieved more in two years than those before her have achieved in 20. One of the ways we've engaged with conversations surrounding the climate crisis, and in particular the school strikes, has been through our songwriting. Wrong Side of the Tracks is a song we wrote as a kind of accolade or tribute to the next generation who are leading the charge against the abuse of our planet. I wanted to speak about the immense sense of restored hope which I felt, seeing the streets filled with young people coming together with a singular message to raise the alarm. It's a song about keeping your eyes on the future and not allowing the flame of resilience that exists inside each of us to be extinguished by adversity. It's also got some pretty fierce drumming on it from Mr. Kapil Trivedi, and you'll get a chance to hear the full album version at the end of this podcast. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Noga Levy-Rappaport is an 18-year-old climate activist fighting for an internationalist Green New Deal. Named as one of the most influential Londoners of 2019 by the Evening Standard, she's confronted corporate leaders at International Petroleum Week and has spoken at, organised and led several marches and events as part of the UK Student Climate Network. She's also written for and been featured in The Guardian, Dazed, The BBC and The Times for her work on youth empowerment, educational reform and systemic change from a grassroots to global level. I first met Noga back in January this year when we invited her to talk at Speaker's Corner, our panel event at the YouTube space in London, linked down in the show notes. I was struck by the way she spoke so passionately and tenaciously about the urgent need for climate action, and I want to thank Noga once more for recording her thoughts, especially for things worth fighting for. It's a huge honour to have her on the pod. Another person blowing the whistle in the fight to protect the flora and fauna of our planet is the person I'm about to speak to. Our guest on today's episode of Things Worth Fighting For is an inspiring young person helping to change the face of conservationism in years ahead. A campaigner for animal welfare, a self-taught filmmaker, blogger and writer for The Ecologist and a youth ambassador for the Born Free Foundation, the Jane Goodall Institute and the RSPCA. Bella Lack. Often labelled in the press as the British Greta Thunberg for her huge following on social media, Bella, aged 17, has spoken at the Illegal Wildlife Conference, given her own TEDx talk, and her documentary work has taken her from the rainforest of Borneo to tackling the mistreatment of elephants in Thailand, as well as meeting various international leaders and royal family members along the way. In August of this year, it was announced that Penguin had secured the rights to Bella's upcoming book, The Children of the Anthropocene. The book will chronicle the lives of young people on the front line of the environmental crisis around the world, fighting plastic pollution and global warming to biodiversity loss and rising sea levels. I met with Bella in February of this year, before the world went into the first lockdown, so we had the great joy of hanging out at my flat in London and chatting in person unlike some of the other episodes of this podcast, which were recorded via screens and phones. I hope you enjoy our conversation and I'll meet you on the other side. First off, thank you for taking time out of your day to be here. I know how busy you are. 
have you got a lot on at the moment? Quite a lot. Today was bad in particular because of, well, I told you the story. I had a bit of a problem with my bike on the train. <laughs> yeah. So this is this is the problem trying to be environmentally friendly. I took my bike on the Piccadilly, right. um, got shouted at by the steward, got off, left my bike and I was caught with no lock. Anyway, to, That's brave. I could I take mean, up the podcast with this story, so we should move on. But No, I, I, I admire your courage taking a bicycle on public transport. Mm, I got some dirty looks from yeah. Londoners. I mean, you get that on a daily basis in London, yeah. but... I suppose, to begin with, it's worth mentioning we're both from... We're both actually from the same part of London, from Richmond. Really? Are you from Richmond? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm from Richmond as well. Are you? Yeah. I think people have quite a warped perception of Richmond and that area. Lots of people I know say it's the countryside. And I think that could show quite a lot about our perception of nature as well. I mean, if you live in Richmond, you know it's definitely not the countryside. No. I mean, I suppose as London expands, it's all, it almost feels like it's become not in a city, but it doesn't feel like the suburbs anymore. It feels like London's grown so much that Richmond mm. actually feels quite central at this point. Yeah, it's sort of being consumed by the, yeah. by the inner city. Yeah. What was it like growing up there? It was good. <laughs> I mean, for me... Because I loved being in nature and it, since I was very young it was always that I had an inherent love of the natural world and it's near Richmond Park and Kew Gardens so I had the benefits of living in London and being close to friends but also having that ability to escape into nature which is actually shouldn't be that way. Nature should be you know, spread, should be coexisting alongside us and dispersed around where we live but anyway I had the ability to go into the park and Kew Gardens which was I think one of the highlights of living in the area. Well so talking about where you grew up you used to live nearby to quite a famous zoologist didn't you? Oh David Attenborough was it. (laughs) I know this is it was a terrible coincidence for him because I used to deliver lots of letters to him on quite a regular basis and even last year, actually, and he replied to many of them because this is part of his ethos to reply to all young young people. Um, one time I sent a letter with just a picture of me holding some earwigs. <laughs> <laughs> and many times it was asking for help or advice because, you know, to me, I really idolised, I still do, idolised him. He's a national treasure. He, yeah, and he really uplifts so many of the values that we have about environmentalism. And he can say one thing and change the nation's mindset as he did about plastic in Blue Planet. Um, So he has a lot of influence and power over how we think and see the natural world. I think he said at one point that every young child is born a naturalist and it's sort of society which weans that out of us. And I think he's trying trying to protect that thing within every person which, within every young child which really loves and respects nature and as we grow up, we're sort of taught to view wildlife, especially in cities, to view wildlife as pests and to be repulsed by dirt and by the natural world. And, um, yeah, I think he recognises that that's wrong and that's one of the roots of the environmental crisis, just the separation between us and nature. Mm. And maybe we shouldn't even say nature because that sort of suggests it's something outside of us when really it's the cornerstone of how we live and survive. And that really begins at home, doesn't it? I mean, it begins in your back garden, just actually learning about what wildlife is around you, even living in a city. Because obviously where, you know, as as humans, we have cats and dogs, but then there seems to be a separation when we think about lesser 
beings or animals elsewhere. We, you know, we don't attribute the same levels of intelligence, for example, to, to other species. Mm, speciesism. When you were younger, were you encouraged as well to be outside and did you have that fascination? I was very fortunate in that I spent part of my childhood in a city and part of it in, in the countryside in rural southwest France. So when I lived in France, we, it was wonderful. It was, the, it was the kind of childhood where the door was always open. There was always, you know, cows, horses, sheep. I mean, we, we, were, we were really in the middle of nature. And um, a lot of my friends were crop farmers or cattle farmers because I went to primary school out there. And so I really, I feel so fortunate that I had that connection with nature at such a young age because I think particularly in terms of learning how food ends up on our plate and finding an appreciation for that and just really recognising animals as not being any different to us mm -hmm. and, you know, finding that appreciation of, of animals in the same way that we do for cats and dogs, you know. Yeah. I mean, I think there are different levels between species. We obviously can't attribute the same importance to a mosquito as to a human being simply because... You know, we are humans and you have to recognise that the intelligence in another human is more worthy of protection than a mosquito. But I think that doesn't mean that we can't give the same amount of respect. All animals have a purpose in the ecosystem. And right now, at risk of sounding a bit, alternative life is like a web. And, you know, this just as an analogy and the many species going extinct now are like it's like we're uh, extricating strands of the web and it's becoming weaker and weaker and that's why we can't simply protect the species that we deem important like rhinos and elephants um, and orangutans for example we actually have to look at the insects and the the smaller species which we don't deem as important but which are just just as fundamental to the ecosystem mm, absolutely I know you've talked about having this reverence for the natural world since you were very young and it was learning about the devastation caused by palm oil at a young age that led you on the first steps of your journey. Can you tell me a little bit more about why it was that discovery that made you want to act? Yeah, so the, the orangutan as a species had a big importance to me personally. Um, I don't know why. Some people say the, the red hair, the similarity in looks because I have red hair. Anyway, I watched a video about palm oil and the, the effects on the orangutans and the similarity in, in their species to our species is really striking just in the way they look but also in the social structure and the way they treat each other. And if we could cause so much destruction to them, you know, it's possible to do the same to ourselves and we were creating this division between us and them and it just really troubled me how easily we were destroying their habitat and their home just because of palm oil, one product, which actually isn't even necessary in many products. So I began using social media to campaign um, about palm oil mostly and from there on social media, obviously you have the platform to learn more and it's a blessing and a curse, but I learned a lot more about other issues, which is what led me into do um, campaigning for many other things, but the environment in general. We're just going to jump through time here. Fast forward five years and you're an ambassador for the Born Free Foundation. That's quite a remarkable leap from making that first discovery and seeing that film that, that turned you on to, you know, the devastation of deforestation to make palm oil. I mean, 
Can you walk me through that journey? Because I'm sure our listeners will find that really interesting. When I began to use social media, I used Twitter primarily and had a platform on there. And through there, I was contacted by the Born Free Foundation because I was doing a bit of work on captivity in zoos. Um, And they said, do you want to come and see us? So I went and then they asked if I wanted to be an ambassador. And that was really the first organisation I got deeply involved with. And they really have very similar moral system to me, which is about the environment, but we also can't overlook the individual. So, for example, some people... Have you heard of trophy hunting? Yeah. Um, yeah, some people say that's environmentalism and conservation because you can be giving money to protect species, but born free say, well, how on earth can you be calling it conservation if you're killing individuals? So I think that... Um, mindset of thinking about the environment as a whole but also about the individual uh, whether that be human or non-human that's what I really like about that organization and after getting involved with them I began to work with some others as well but Born Free still remains the most important to me. I suppose applying that to palm oil I mean we're becoming accustomed to reading the stats about things like the Amazonian fires and the devastation caused by deforestation but something not a lot of people have a chance to witness is to see these problems at their source and see how the systemic change with something like deforestation is dealt with in the country in which it occurs. And I know one of your trips took you to the plantations where the palm oil actually comes from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and seeing that actually really confused me rather than clarified anything because... I realised how embedded the issue was in much wider societal issues and how hypocritical it was for me to say we have to boycott all palm oil when I was meeting these farmers, you know, who were just barely making a livelihood and who relied on palm oil. Um, So since then, my mindset has changed to rather than boycotting it, we have to look for sustainable solutions. And right now, I don't think completely sustainable palm oil exists, but we have to keep pushing for that option that's reflected in many issues as well because often we look at the statistics or we gain a very superficial view without looking deeper into it. And I know many people don't have the time or the energy or resources to gain a deeper insight, but it's important that you know before we immediately form a view, we're open to listening to the other side. And um, you can sort of be the antithesis of Piers Morgan and, and then you're on the right track. I I think you touched on something there which is quite important, which is that it's very easy to direct our criticism and scepticism of something like a crop like palm oil in in the wrong place. It's a complicated crop because it's, it's one that many of the producers in Malaysia rely on to feed their families. So we need to be careful not to demonize or boycott the communities who rely on their livelihoods from farming, but actually to apply that pressure on the supermarkets, on the food suppliers, to use sustainable sources. But can you see a future where there are sustainable sources of palm oil? Or do you think it needs to be eradicated altogether? Um, I think we have to have a future where there are sustainable sources, simply because so many people in the industry do rely on it. And as you say, the issue is deeply embedded in the system, not the people. And that's the root of the cause is the system and the supply chain, and that's where we have to make the change. As humans, I think without something to move towards, it's very hard to move at all. 
if that makes sense. That makes we're sense. so we're so focused on denouncing and challenging and criticizing what's happening. There's no really unified movement. So we need to sustainable palm oil is a point in the future that we can look towards and move towards. But if our only action right now is boycotting it, that's that's fine to boycott it, but something's going to have to replace it. Mm. And who's to say that won't be more more damaging to the environment? So I think sustainable palm oil is a good vision of the future which we can move towards and aim for. For people that aren't familiar with where palm oil appears, I mean, it's it's so ubiquitous with modern life, isn't it? I mean, it's in our toothpaste. We dunk our dishes in it. We wash our faces with it we spread it on our toast it really is everywhere Mm -hmm. and it's in our cars as well in biofuel yeah it's in everything yeah so moving from malaysia up to thailand another species which i know is very dear to you is the elephant Mm -hmm. i watched the bbc's generation activism film in which you documented one of your early trips to thailand and you got to see firsthand the the cruel mistreatment of asian elephants in the tourist camps I mean, some of what you see on those trips must be quite heartbreaking for an animal lover. How do you deal with that? Um, I think for that trip in particular, there was one circumstance where I saw the ba- they go through a process called pajan, and the babies are separated from the mothers, they're isolated, um, and they're beaten until they become subservient to humans. I witnessed briefly one of the separation of the baby and the mum, and that was really uh, heartbreaking and moving to see how we deemed that acceptable just for the entertainment of some tourists. But actually that trip, it educated me and it also, not inspired, but energised me to continue um, campaigning. Because when you see the individuals and you see it firsthand, you realise how important it is. And although social media can be a big mobiliser, it's not as powerful as when you see it firsthand. So I think that trip sort of broke my heart and then made it stronger. Mm. Well, you, yeah. it definitely came across in the film that it really, you know, affected you very deeply. But I understand that when you got back and you shared the film, one of the elephant camps actually got in touch with you. Mm-hmm. And they, yeah. they, they pledged to change the, the way in which they keep the animals. Yeah, that was a really um, good outcome because it, the film was really just for awareness. And I was hoping through the platform of BBC Three, some people who may have ridden elephants in the past would realise how unacceptable it was. But as a happy coincidence, the tourist camp stumbled across my video. And I think more in self-preservation than anything else, they said that they would firstly check up on this this particular baby elephant, which I thought looked ill. Um, was this the one on the very short chain, which, yeah, which you showed? Yeah. yeah. And then another a tourism agency said that they wouldn't offer elephant riding in unsustainable and unethical places. So that was a good outcome as well. Yeah, that's an amazing achievement. Hi there. This is the bit in the podcast where you might normally hear an advert for something like BT Broadband or CBD smoothie subscriptions. But with December just around the corner, I want to tell you about a bit of a wildcard place to do your Christmas shopping this year. Brought to you by the Help Refugees organisation, the Choose Love Shop is a store like no other, selling real products to help refugees fleeing war, famine and climate change. 
Every item in the store represents a product or a service in one of the 120 projects which help refugees support around the globe. From sanitary items like toothbrushes and hot showers to gloves, warm blankets and firewood, each item comes with a downloadable gift card which can be wrapped up and given to a loved one, meaning you can give a completely unique gift on their behalf this Christmas. The idea of the store, we wanted it to look cool like an Apple store. We wanted to make charity cool, make compassion cool, like a new take on the charity shop. So we have a big table down the middle, and on the table are items that we distribute, like a child's coat or a blanket, um, and you can buy it, leave with nothing, and then we buy those items in the countries that we work in. Or there was like a life jacket that represents search and rescue, so you buy that, and then those funds go towards the search and rescue boat. And people just, it, it's a, it's really emotional. It's it's like the most, it's a really happy pocket of hope, I think, inside the stores. That was my mate Josie Norton, co-founder of Help Refugees, talking about the Choose Love pop-up shop on episode one of this podcast from way back in January. Link to their online shop down in the show notes for how to give a gift to someone who really needs it this year. Thanks for listening. Now let's go back to Bella Lack. Like you, I'm very close to my parents and I'm fortunate that I've shared a lot of my travels in music ah, with my dad. You said I was close to my parents. <laughs> Actually, no, they're going to be listening. Yeah, I'm very close to them. <laughs> and I'm very fortunate in that I've shared a lot of my travels in music with my dad so a lot of those experiences have been shared, which has been amazing for us both. I read that your mum came with you on the trip to Thailand. Mm-hmm. Is she very supportive of your work? Uh, yeah, she's supportive of it. She's not a proponent of it, if that makes sense. She doesn't do any activism herself, but she's made changes in her life since I began. Like, my family eat much less meat, and I think generally I'm more aware of what is going on and the role that they should play. My brother's a bit tricky. He sort of does the opposite of what I say. But yeah, my mum, my parents are both supportive and she's been with some projects, a project I've been working on recently. She's been coming to all the locations we've been uh, filming at and that's taken six months. So, you know, it's a lot of commitment and support which had to happen for that to happen for me. Has that been your trip to Costa Rica? Yeah, well, it wasn't just Costa Rica. We've been to lots of different locations, but that the trip to Costa Rica was encompassed in the project. And that was, it's, it's for a film? Yeah. It's called it's, Animal? It's called Animal. Um, I've been mentioning it quite a lot because it's kind of consumed my whole life for the last six months, and we just finished a few days ago. So I'm sort of on an anticlimactic little few days now because when you finish a project which you pour so much into, it's a bit... Uh, disappointing and devastating to finish but the the idea of the film is it's called Animal and the is by a French production company and me and another teenage boy uh, are being taken around the world to try and find solutions to the sixth mass extinction and we're meeting people who are on the front lines who already have solutions but finding more about the work that they're doing in the communities and using uh, their lives and their work as case studies and thinking about how we could create a new narrative for the future, which goes back to what I talk about, about creating uh, a vision that we can work towards. So it's all about creating a new narrative and finding ways for humans to exist better uh, within and alongside the natural world. Mm. And I mean, Costa Rica, from what I've read, is at the forefront of that change. Mm. I mean, they're working towards zero carbon emissions target aren't they yeah and what's really interesting is that they've also abolished their army 
and the money that originally was poured into the army has been redistributed to the environment, to human education and welfare. So they've sort of made peace with humans, but at the same time they're making peace with the environment. And um, they've committed to carbon neutrality by next year and complete decarbonisation by 2050. And actually we were fortunate to interview the president a few days ago and he was talking about how he has a son and when his son in 30 years' time is old enough to ask, what did you do? He wants to really say that he did as much as he can and he has a big influence as a president but he thinks that everyone should be able to say we did as much as we can. And Costa Rica is only a really small country but it is a really good snapshot into how when you prioritise people and planet rather than just profit, you can really make a difference and really heighten the level of the standard of living for everyone, human and non-human. Mm. I mean, as with the floods and the storms, it's often people in the poorest and most remote communities who feel the effects of climate change the worst. People who largely, for so long, their voices have been ignored. Something I know you've written and talked about is the importance of indigenous people in the planet's biodiversity. So in Costa Rica, they the uh, forests have been cut down to 20% at one point and now they're over 50% again and a large part of that has been the indigenous people and um, the way that they're leading reforestation projects and when we met them their mindset is really completely different to ours just the way that they see themselves and the way that they see um, the environment around them and in a way they see the environment as something which they give to and they're a small part of but the way we see it is we dominate over it and it's a small part of us and I think that's particularly true when you live in cities yeah because it feels like all this news that's coming in of wildfires and floods it's happening to someone else somewhere else in a far corner of the world but actually when you visit somewhere like Costa Rica it must be so palpable how mm-hmm. those effects are being felt in those communities. Yeah, and I don't want to become too abstract, but it's definitely that subtle difference in just the mindset of how they approach the environment, which has made a huge difference in the fact that Costa Rica is so successful and the fact that we're not, really. I mean, we're very... In the UK in particular, we look at the Amazon, as you mentioned, and we say why are you burning down your forests, but forgetting that we've already cut down all of our forests. Um, you know, we used to be what George Monbiot called a rainforest nation in the UK. We're a largely forested country. And now I think 50%, 51% of our land is just for cows. So we're really in a bad position mm. Which is obviously problematic in itself. Yeah, and it's bad because we don't really have any position of superiority to say to other countries because... Simply, we're already at a worse position than them. So I think as well as taking part in the global conversation, we really have to change our approach to environmentalism in England and in the UK as well. Hmm. The term biodiversity is a fairly new one, coined only 30 or so years ago. But its explanation is fairly simple. It's biological diversity. But it's actually an incredibly complex feature of our planet, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about biodiversity? Yeah. In a way, it's the, one of the most overlooked, important aspects 
of everything because w there are two main crises the climate crisis which the narrative now around the climate crisis is much better it's not yet perfect but it's improving a lot and then there's the the sixth mass extinction or the loss of biodiversity or just the loss of life which is the other crises and this is sort of the undermining of biodiversity and the loss of species and it's such a problem because I touched on it earlier but these networks of life are the things which uphold the climate they're the things which allow us to continue living and provide the very conditions for us to continue living and inhabiting the planet and actually biodiversity is a bit too abstract some people have said we shouldn't use that word we should just say life or wildlife because it's it's almost a scientific term when really biodiversity is just anything that lives yeah I mean, I suppose something this naturally leads on to is Jane Goodall, the famous primatologist. Oh, yeah. She's a bit of a hero of yours, isn't she? She is. We were really lucky for the film to meet her a few last month. And actually, it was quite terrible because I knew everything she was going to say. And because I listened to all of her speeches. So I was sort of finishing her sentences before she even knew what she was going to say. But yeah, I learned a lot from her and I think we all could from her mindset and from the fact that when she began working, she was a pioneer and everyone said to her, you're a female, you can't go and live in Africa by yourself and also you haven't had any science degree so you can't study them and also you don't know that animals feel emotions uh, so you can't say that they do and you can't give them names, you have to give them numbers. So she made many discoveries and was really a trailblazer for females in science, for animal emotions, and for just this idea that other species can really feel and exhibit similar emotions to us. Mm. And it was things like some, in some of those discoveries were observing how chimpanzees use tools in the same way that we do. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, a lot of those discoveries which were documented beautifully in the pages of the National Geographic, changed, do you think it's fair to say it, it changed the way we even viewed early man and how we viewed ourselves in observing these animals? Yeah, I think looking into nature teaches us a lot about ourselves and what she did definitely taught us a lot about ourselves as well. Actually, when she discovered that, I think Lewis Leakey, who was her supervisor, said, we either have to redefine tool, redefine tool maker, or redefine man, or something along those lines, simply because we'd seen ourselves as the only species which used tools. And now suddenly these barriers and this pedestal that we put ourselves on was being broken down. Dismantled, yeah. yeah. it's being dismantled, and we realise maybe we're not so superior. Maybe other species can do things which we can't. It was a big pivotal moment for mm. animal welfare. I mean, something that's always infuriated me is how we deem animals less intelligent beings because they don't speak our language, you know, and how we can put a life form lower down the spectrum of sentient beings simply because we don't understand it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's strange how we measure everything by human standards. There are so many different ways that animals communicate. Elephants communicate through the ground. Blue whales can communicate across half the ocean, I think. And these are frequencies that we can't even hear. And I heard about uh, this story in a book called An Elephant in My Kitchen. 
Um, and the man, he protected a herd of elephants in Africa. He rescued them. And when he died, this herd who had become very close to him were thousands of miles away. And the moment he died, the ranger with him recognised that the elephant, the herd, all turned around and came back to the place that he was, to where his body was. Um, and they stayed in this location for a long time, which they'd never done before. Um, almost mourning and grieving him and no one knows how you know they had that ability to know but we can't yet measure how they communicate and how they sense and I think until we can understand we have no idea how intelligent an animal is yeah so we need to really stop uh, putting ourselves above other species simply through human metrics. Mm. You made another film which, or you involved in the making of the film, which talked about humans as animals. Yeah, this was just a, a small film I made for YouTube. And, but I thought what was interesting about it is that it seemed to me that it was communicating the message that in order to understand the plights of endangered animals, we need to identify ourselves as animals as a way mm. of understanding, as a way of empathising with, with their experience. Yeah, and I think we're one of the most endangered species as well because we always say we're going to save the world, but the world is fine. You know, what we're really doing is saving ourselves and saving a few other life forms as well, because whatever happens, the planet will continue. But if anything happens to the climate or to biodiversity, we'll be one of the first species to go. Mm. So that film was really highlighting how we need to recognise that we're in danger as well and appreciate ourselves as a species, because environmentalism can become quite... Uh, misanthropic mm. and you know I'm at fault as well I think oh these humans we're so we're so annoying let's get rid of all of us but um that approach is never going to work and how on earth can we want to protect animals when we are an animal and if we separate ourselves by saying we shouldn't protect ourselves we should protect other life forms then we're essentially saying that we're not a part of nature and we're not an animal and then that's problematic. So we have to recognise our place in nature and then recognise the importance of our role in the ecosystem. And there's a French anthropologist called Philippe Descola who we interviewed as well. And he um, thinks there's no such thing as nature and culture. There's no such thing as human and animal. Um, it's just really a continuity. Mm. And this is a really indigenous mindset, which many indigenous tribes have, um, to see themselves on a spectrum with nature rather than a discontinuity that we have in the Western world where we see ourselves and then this barrier between us and the rest of nature. God, that's fascinating. Yeah. I didn't do justice to his work, but he has a really good book called Beyond Nature and Culture, which if anyone's interested, they should read that because it's really uh, insightful and interesting. Another place your journey with elephants took you was the Illegal Wildlife Trade Conference. Last mm -hmm. year, was that? Um, in 2018. Oh, my life is flying by. Yeah, <laughs> felt like last year, two years ago. And that was something that the Foreign Office invited you to? Yeah. Yeah, how was that? I was a bit surprised, actually, because everything I'd been to had been protesting campaigns and suddenly I was at this really formal event, um, you know, with Prince William and many decision makers mm. all in their suits and all one very similar demographic and I was the only young person there and I felt they were all making these pledges which almost none of them 
became ratified after the conference anyway. And then I sort of saw the problem, which is that we sat around talking. There were lunch breaks and, you know, people were having sort of a good time at these conferences and going into a room to make a pledge. But they weren't really... It was so separate from the problem. Mm. It felt like somewhere that they needed to be seen to be Yeah, very tokenistic. And even just having me there, it was like, we have a young person, we're representing future generations. And this is the problem with the decision makers making pledges and not ratifying them at all and them not being legally binding. So this is one thing that has to change. People have to be involved in the process, all people, not just a certain elite group of people. Mm. Processes have to become more democratic and involve more demographies. If we're going to have any chance of making sure that pledges and promises are actually uh, held up to the standard that they're originally promised. I mean, talking about those lawmakers and leaders that attend those conferences i mean how do you chase them to make sure that they actually commit to their pledges is that going after them must be quite an involved thing to do Mm -hmm. well usually i think the main way is through protest and campaigning but one of all pledges have to become legally binding we should have um in france they have a really powerful citizens assembly so people have a, a say um, and actually people, rather than just people who want power, are able to make the decisions. These are citizens who are picked at random, who come in to the Citizens' Assembly and who are given the information and they make the decisions. And then that goes to the uh, Parliament, to the government. Mm. And we've just got one in the UK a few weeks ago for climate, but we need one for our political system as a whole so that people are involved in the process. And then another way... Because obviously to- that's one of the things that Extinction Rebellion have been yeah. campaigning for. Yeah, and really success. I think that's why we have one, because of Extinction Rebellion. But it's a bit exclusive just to have one for climate when it's so interrelated in a web of other social problems as well. Something else I wanted to talk to you about was zoos. Where, where do you stand on zoos? I think for the most part, many zoos can't justify keeping animals. And some species in particular, the larger species who require lots of space to roam, like elephants, like great apes, um, like big cats. I mean, I think there is a place for conservation in captivity of smaller animals, such as insects or amphibians, if there are species whose numbers have been reduced drastically. But I think the justification of zoos is, for the most part, for our amusement Mm. and Saying that keeping an animal in a cage is for conservation is flawed because you're never going to be able to release that animal back into the wild. And there's only one zoo in the UK which I know of, which is Howlett's, run by Damien Aspinall. Hmm. And they do release animals back in, but he doesn't call it a zoo and he actually hates zoos. because He hates the whole concept of justifying our amusement and their captivity. But this is primarily just to release them back into the wild and the whole project's dedicated towards that. So I, I really love what he does, but for example, London Zoo, they do good work abroad, but having that small space in London, I think it's unnecessary. Because obviously one of the reasons that zoos use to justify their existence is that they are centres of research um, into conservation, but there is just this underlying thing of these do feel like tourist traps and that they feel like relics from from a from another age don't they mm-hmm. yeah and um 
you know, zoos have existed for a long time and I think that some of the standards have improved, but the whole concept is really archaic and it just perpetuates the idea that if we want to protect a species, then keeping them in a cage is acceptable. And, you know, it has been done before with an indigenous with indigenous tribes, I think even in London Zoo, they kept an indigenous person in a cage because this tribe was becoming was endangered. And then it was justified for the same reason as zoos are justified now. But we look back and we think, oh, why on earth would you ever keep a person in it's a unthinkable. cage? Yeah, it's it's the same justification. So I think we have to sort of remove ourselves from the conditioning that we have when we're young and just look at how how absurd it is. Do you think we can learn enough about the plights of endangered animals from watching documentaries like Attenborough Documentaries or Blue Planet in order to understand their plights? Or do you think we need to actually see animals firsthand? I suppose that's a question because as a child, some of my earliest memories were being taken to London Zoo and seeing the elephants and the giraffes and really appreciating their splendour in front of me and I I suppose it's just a question is do you need to see an animal for, an animal like that firsthand to really appreciate the value of its life or can you get enough from watching documentaries? I think what David Attenborough has done with his documentaries has instilled in us a really necessary respect of nature but we also have to have the hands-on contact the first-hand direct experience with nature and when I when we say this and we think of zoos we often think we have to go to Africa um, or we have to go to Borneo for example but actually on our doorstep there are some incredible species and in the UK a big concept at the moment is rewilding about reintroducing species back into our landscape especially our uplands and I think that will be a big part in really making us all appreciate the nature we have on our doorstep because the reason that we sort of think that we have to go abroad rather than experiencing the natural beauty and magic is because we don't really have any left. Mm. I mean, we have the potential to have some extraordinary species and wildlife, but lots of what we do have has been eroded. And um, sorry, now, now they're doing lots of projects to reintroduce beavers. And I think there's some talk about wolves, rewilding with wolves, which I, yeah, I don't know yet. I'm all for that. I definitely want some more wolves. I think there's a problem between conflict, human-wildlife conflict, but, yeah. And, you know, we used to have elephants in London a long time ago. I mean, wild elephants. Before London existed, elephants actually roamed across. They found bones under Trafalgar Square, I think, of longhorn elephants. So we used to have a really, really wild nation, and now it's become almost an ecological wasteland of just grass and cattle and sheeps. Sheeps, what's happened to me? <laughs> Sheepses. <laughs> Sheepses, yeah. But no, something else I wanted to ask you about was whales, because I know on your social media you, you post a lot about whales. Are they, are they an animal that are particularly close to your heart, or a species rather that are complete, very close to your heart? I think so, because I recognise a lot of us in them mm. as well, and in their... Uh, social structures and the the way they they seem to show so much empathy to each other and especially to their children um, and also just 
I, I've never seen one, but just it really blows my mind, the blue whale, how we have this huge species just roaming the sea and it's something, looks like something from the prehistoric era. Mm-hmm. And we sort of overlook how amazing it is. And maybe you saw the video I posted on Twitter of one... Um, There's one of it, of it kind of having a little dance. Yeah, and, and it was spins. just amazing. And I just think we so we just overlook how we think about dinosaurs and people are obsessed with the idea that these big creatures used to fly around on Earth. And actually, we still have them in the ocean. Yeah, we just need to really appreciate how lucky we are that they still exist and how important it is that we protect them and we really appreciate their existence. There was an incredible video that's, that someone shared from, from the darkest recesses of the internet last oh. week. And it was of a, I think it was a baby sperm whale returning a phone to someone. Did you see that? Mm, yeah. I saw that and I shared it on Twitter. And then I realised my mistake and that this whale had been trained by Captain... Oh, uh, right. Sorry to burst the bubble. My bubble was burst as well. I, yeah. thought, I thought it was this really empathetic sperm whale bringing a phone back. But no, turns out it was trained by a local, the local government and they released it or it escaped into the wild. Right. Yeah, so there's a different, there's a different side to everything. Yeah, absolutely. Hello. Yeah, me again. This is the part of the episode which we like to use to signal boost other artists, podcasters or writers who are doing great things. And this week, I want to tell you about a great podcast called Outrage and Optimism, presented by former members of the EU Committee on Climate Change, Christiana Figueres and Tom Rivet Karnak, aka two of the team that brought about the Paris Agreement. Outrage and Optimism is a brilliantly informed and often very funny weekly podcast tackling the climate crisis head-on, which is top podcast charts around the world. Each episode features topical debates, a live music segment, which I'm very honoured to say we've performed on, as well as a long-form interview with some of the biggest names in the environmental movement, including Jane Goodall, Greta Thunberg, Richard Attenborough and many more. Certainly over the last couple of years, just now, people have made that connection between environmental issues and fashion and the harm that that we have to contribute. It's a fickle industry and we are Mm. fickle, us humans, Mm. and, you know, things come in and out of fashion. So, But fur, in my opinion, number one, it's deeply cruel and deeply unnecessary because the alternatives are far better for the environment, far better for the animals, and you cannot tell the difference. And there is hope in in that area of the conversation and and people have joined um, my thoughts on that because, yeah, I was certainly one of the first to not do fur. That was a sample of designer Stella McCartney talking about the environmental impact of fashion on the brilliant podcast Outrage and Optimism. Link down in the show notes for where to subscribe. Thanks for listening. Now let's go back to Bella. Can I ask, do you have any favourite species? I mean, I think probably like like your great hero, Jane Goodall, I think primates, you know... Um, I visited some some monkey sanctuaries. There's there's an amazing one down in Cornwall actually. And oh, Monkey World. Monkey, was, it? Uh, was it Monkey World or was it? I know there is Monkey World. I think that might be. Oh, that's Dorset. Dorset. There's one in Cornwall which I'll have to look up. I mean, I share I share your dislike of zoos massively, and actually, where that started for me was I was travelling in India about eight or nine years ago with the band, we ended up on the west coast of India and we visited quite a famous zoo in a city called Trivandrum. And I don't know if you've ever read the book, The Life of Pi. 
yeah, and watch the film. And watch the film, yeah. Well, so the so the inspiration for Richard Parker's character uh, came from that zoo, which the author had visited as as a, as a child. And one of the things I saw there was was this giant vulture, which which we're so used to seeing in films as being this incredibly gracious. I mean, it's perhaps uh, not helped that it's it's attributed the, the characteristics of being a predatory animal, you know, in Disney films and so mm. on. But it's and associated with death as well. Associated usually. with death, but it's seen as this this in, this incredible, you know, king of the skies. And here it was in this tiny cage, and it had plucked out all its own feathers, and its feathers were all over the all over the ground. And I found that so heartbreaking, and that really changed the whole way that I view zoos and you know animals being kept in captivity which I, which I had seen from a young age going to places like Longley or Windsor Safari Park which thankfully doesn't exist anymore but when I visited this this monkey sanctuary down in Cornwall a lot of the monkeys that they have there have been rescued from people who had brought them into come into the country illegally as pets and for one reason or another had they had ended up in the hands of the RSPCA and and, and they got brought to the sanctuary and I think in some cases they are working on taking the animals back to their habitats. But there was there's quite a famous uh, monkey that they've got there called Joey, and Joey is um, Joey was rescued from uh, some kind of witch doctor who was living in this horrible flat in London and had and had been inviting people round supposedly curing them and had this monkey as a um do you know about do you know no. About, no he was this incredible being who had been through this 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 life in captivity and a life of abuse and he was he was quite deformed and i think what was very powerful is that um this was somewhere that people could learn about his story and and understand why we we can't keep animals like that as pets and why they don't belong here i think that really communicated something very powerful to me mm. i think the purpose of a sanctuary though is very different to the purpose of a zoo mm. i suspect no sanctuary would breed they weren't they weren't breeding the monkeys no 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 there no. was a yeah. rescue center yeah yeah so just to change the topic of conversation i'd like to talk a little bit more about the climate emergency so like many people i woke on New Year's Day to the devastating scenes of the wildfires in Australia. It's a country that I've spent quite a lot of time in because my mum's side of the family is from Australia, from Melbourne. So when those pictures started coming in of people rescuing koalas off the road, it affected me very, very deeply. Have you, have you been keeping an eye on the progress with the wildfires in Australia? Mm. But, you know, the fury that was ablaze on social media, and excuse the pun, mm. Um, the theory that was ablaze on social media has sort of dampened now because our attention span is quite short. Although the fires, I know there has been rain, but I think they're still in a state of emergency. Mm. And this is sort of the problem with these social media trends. We all become so concerned in a very tokenistic, let's post it on my Instagram story, tweet about it way. And then we're tweeting about Love Island again. Yeah, and then as soon as Love Island comes on, they're so sh and that's trending and the fires move out. And I was really hoping we could harness that frustration and that anger and really make a difference this time. But it seems like it's just a replication of the fires in the Amazon and in Indonesia and across the world. 
where the cycle happened, people become furious with that, the leader of that country, and they become really critical and accusational, and then as soon as they forget about it and move on. That's, I think that's a really good point, is that these both the, the, both the fires in the Amazon and Australia, as well as the Californian fires, they became very political very quickly, didn't they? I think they were political just at the, in the very nature of them, simply because if you look at the leaders of the country, they all have something in common. But we have to recognise that, you know, Australia and the Amazon, they don't stand in isolation. And Australia was burning because of the global climate emergency. And as terrible as and useless as Scott Morrison and Bolsonaro are, I think it's a responsibility for all of us. So when we see Australia burning, we don't point our finger at the Australian government. We look at our own government and think, why aren't you doing enough? And then this is a way to maintain that interest. So as soon as the fires stop or the interest is lost in the fires in Australia, we have to keep looking at our own governments about and maintaining that pressure to push them to change. Mm. Can I, what is the atmosphere like in Australia? Do people Are people resigned to the fact that they're getting worse and worse or is there a resistance against the government? I mean, I think they were they were, speaking for my side of the family, they were... You know, they were very thankful when the rain came, but it was, but it then became torrential rain, you know, which is, which, which itself was emblematic of, of climate change. But I think it's, it's hard to say, as you said, it's, it, it's still, we're, we're still in the midst of it. Um, and a lot of those, um, you know, the, the, the wildlife rescue campaigns are still very much in progress. So I don't know. I think people, people are hurting, definitely. What was it that triggered you to take part in the youth strikes? So originally my participation in climate activism was with another movement called This Is Zero Hour, which happened about a year before the climate strikes. Um, and it originated in America with a young activist, seven, she was 17 years old, called Jamie Margolin. Really, we did a march in London and only about 50 people came. And then the climate strikes happened in January after that summer. And suddenly, you know, thousands of people were being mobilised and it was this huge upsurge in concern. And that's when things really began to change and the narrative began to change around the climate crisis. And now at my school, school I went to, everywhere, it's the, at the forefront of people's minds, especially young people. And Do you think that's true for the whole country? I haven't had much experience in activism outside, outside of London I would say London is sort of the hub of what's happening simply mm. because of, you know, it's a m metropolis mm. and it's been, it's been the main area for the climate strikes. But actually in many small towns and many small villages, rural villages are having climate strikes and there's a, a Scottish activist called Holly Gillibrand who st started striking in a small village in Scotland and now she has something like... I know one day she had something like 100 young people in a tiny village and it just shows how it's really permeated outside of the, the boundary of London and across the whole of the UK and across the whole world. We see climate activists in all over Africa and Asia and America, in, in fact, in every continent. And I know people have been stri striking in the Arctic and the Antarctic as well. So it's a global problem and everyone's recognising we need a global solution. Mm. I mean, I think there's perhaps quite a popular misconception that young people are incapable of thinking for themselves or are too 
influenced or brainwashed by their parents. But I think something that you've so rightly pointed out is that young people have an advantage in that it's rarer for them to be seen speaking out. So when they do, people do stop and listen. I mean, do you feel listened to? Yeah, I mean, one of the greatest criticisms have been that I've been indoctrinated by my parents, which is crazy because I've actually indoctrinated them. Um, but I think there's a there's a big difference between being heard and being listened to. And our message has definitely been heard by governments, undoubtedly, but it's not being listened to enough yet. Mm. And it's not being acted upon enough Um and if I had to choose a binary option and say, the, has the movement been successful yet? I would say, no, not yet. It hasn't because almost nothing has been done and everything that has been done has not been sufficient. So I think the message needs to continue to be pushed and especially action beyond just words. We have to have bold and legally binding and really obvious action where, where uh, policy is implemented in the next few years. So it has to be a very fast time scale as well. Absolutely. I mean, what's, what's your message to those who have been critical of the school strikes that perpetuate this sentiment of you're too young to understand the science and you should be staying in school? I suppose I'm talking about the Pierce Morgans of the world who we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. Strange thing to say you're too young to understand the science because the whole movement is based upon the science and any denial of it is sort of rejecting the science. So I don't think that's a problem. I think the main argument to people opposing it is by opposing the youth strikes, you're also opposing a better world and sort of being complacent in the destruction that your generation have caused. And I don't actually like this whole idea of You're blaming... You're sidestepping the blame, essentially. Yeah, and I don't like the whole idea of blaming one generation because... It's been a gradual stratified process of humans wanting to develop and wanting to, you know, understandably we wanted to develop, but we have to recognise that development can no longer mean GDP and more industrial revolutions across the world. It has to be in another sense and we need to redefine how we develop. And we're going to continue to progress forward because there's no way that we'll convince all humans to just give up all amenities and live on a cardboard box or something mm. but we have to change the definition of progress and if that's using innovation and technology then maybe that's the way we know now that figures like edward teller dr edward teller warned mm -hmm. the world about the climate science as as far back as 1959 so why do you think the science has been so ostensibly ignored for so long i think partly because of um the fact that we've almost like that analogy of a frog and heating water the problem has been getting worse slowly and slowly and we've had shifting baseline syndrome which is where each generation sort of adapts to the collapse around them and each generation has adapted to this lack of nature and these problems going on but suddenly this shift in the past few years has happened because we've realized things are happening now and this is no longer an abstract projection into the future I can no longer say in speeches I want my children to have a future this is actually I want to have a future mm, now mm. and I want my generation to be able to, to exist on a habitable planet so that the problem has been that our minds aren't geared towards such a monumental challenge in the future 
biologically we're not built to deal with that and when even those people who do understand it are uh, faced with dread and fear and terror and that's sort of debilitating and it leads to apathy and it leads to despair and that doesn't lead to any action but now because many people are realizing the problem and the necessity of urgent action it's really changing our mindsets and um really triggering that fight or flight response and Mm. i think we're beginning to fight a question i've got is you mentioned you're taking a year off school yeah how have you managed to balance campaigning with schoolwork for the last two or three years and obviously also being a young person and doing things that a young person wants to do you know how how do you fit in all those those kind of elements into your life uh last year i didn't really i was doing my gcses and i always prioritized campaigning over my revision um i mean my gcse results were fine but i remember some like the night before my english exam i was at a protest and a panel debate until late into the night and then I had an exam early the next morning. So it was sort of this conflict between studying now and and then, as you say, studying for a future, which I don't want, and which one was more important. And to me, it was more important to do the campaigning. And it wasn't a way of sort of bunking off school because, you know, I took it quite seriously to an extent. So that balance wasn't great. And then in terms of doing normal, well quote normal teenage stuff I think you have to make sacrifices but that's my decision and any young person who's dedicated their life to doing something has to accept that you you, it's your decision to make the sacrifices and you know no one's forcing me in any moment I could say I don't want to do this anymore but right now I see my role and the importance of doing it and therefore I'll continue to make any sacrifices I have to make and actually they're not that big because you meet many new people through the movement and they're usually people who are more aligned with the way you think as well Mm. so it's almost a way of actually building a new community and new connections do you see yourself going back to school for a levels once yeah Yeah. I I have to in September yeah so There's no doubt. Yes, yeah, so it's like an early gap year, and then I won't take a gap year after A levels. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to make the most of this. That's amazing. I think it's so incredible that your, you know, your your family have been so supportive and, and embraced that. How successful do you feel that the curriculum is in communicating the severity of the climate and environmental crisis today? Really, really poor, and this is one of the key problems because I'm going to refer to Costa Rica again, because their education system is all about teaching young people the importance of nature. And ours is all about instilling in us education in the form of maths and English, and um, not in a broader sense of the natural world and other aspects of life. And I think the difference is that in Costa Rica, they grow up with a much more expansive worldview and here we see things in a much more narrow sense and nature is seen sort of as a passion for a very select few and that needs to change and it needs to become incorporated into the curriculum and I know they're introducing a natural history GCSE 
And I don't know the effect of that. Will it make, will it put people off nature? I don't know yet. Um, I think that's, that's a really good question, actually, because there is, or there is, it's inherent to being that age. There is something very common to being that age. And I felt this myself was this need to rebel against what you were being taught in school as a kind of rite of passage, I think, to, to, mm. as a means to finding out your own identity. But we're living in very particular times, as you've said. And I think, as we've discussed, one of the defining, the most defining voice in the ecological crisis is young people. I think young people have always been at the forefront of rebelling against the system because you come, it's a generation with a fresh, fresh eyes, and you sort of see the flaws which others have become accustomed to. And I don't know, was it the same when you were in school? Was the environment a big concern? Or has it has that changed really drastically? Oh, it's changed hugely drastically. I mean... So what was the sort of the point of great rebellion? I can't say there was one. I mean, we would... If you took geography class, you were warned about aerosols and you were told about the ozone layer. But it still felt like such an abstract idea you know it wasn't it wasn't something that was kind of integrated into our daily lives and i really would say that it's in your generation that the severity of the of the climate crisis has actually really come to light um, but all the signs were there you know actually when you look back the, the warnings were there but we were ignorant to them i say we i mean i think the human race um, as you said it's not about necessarily calling out particular generations i think we're all complicit in our own lives to contributing towards that but i definitely feel there was a knowledge gap in terms of the way that we that my generation was taught about our responsibility in school Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and i think um one thing is a little bit off topic but you just reminded me that i i i don't actually think we can going back to earlier we're speaking about scott morrison and bolsonaro i don't think we can blame any individual human Um, and you might say oh but Donald Trump or Bolsonaro for example but on their own they can't cause any damage or they can only cause really really minimal damage and if you look at what they've done they've actually done absolutely nothing they've just put in policies for example instead we should be asking why can those governments that they're in cause so much damage and it's because they have so much support and it's because they're telling powerful stories to vulnerable people really donald trump's telling stories of progress and prosperity to people who need it that's what we have to change it's the general mindset of the population rather than pointing fingers and blaming individuals we have to try and change the mindsets from the bottom up and i think that's really important because we're really not going to move anywhere as long as we continue to accuse individuals and focus on the hypocrisy of an individual instead it has to be a much more holistic view of the culture and what's wrong with the mindset of the society as a whole absolutely i think that's so spot on what advice would you have to give some of our younger listeners who wish to follow your lead and get involved mm. with climate How activism? Old are they? it's hard to know it, i suppose it's difficult to know who's listening but i'd say you know there are there are people discovering our music now that two or three years ago were too young to come to shows um, there's also older people obviously discovering our music i would say you have to ask yourself what is going to be your part in the, this story because we're really at a pivotal point now where we have an opportunity to completely transform the story of humanity of our species 
and everyone has a role to play. And this isn't about striking for the climate or um, becoming an activist. It's about turning the lens on your own life and finding how you can incorporate change into your life. Your own life. Yeah, and how you can also accumulate those actions into into your community, in a sense, so that you're not acting alone, but you're acting as part of a bigger story. Because we could see it as the worst time to be alive, but we could also see it as an incredible opportunity to completely transform our society and all the negative and corrupt aspects of society, which we have to do. It's no longer a choice, it's a necessity. So I think the message is just don't feel compelled to become an activist in the usual sense of the word, but you should feel compelled to make change out of necessity and find ways which will be the most effective in your own life to do it. So lastly, Bella, this is the part of the podcast where I ask you a question which we like to ask each of our guests. What are the three things that you feel worth fighting for? Um, I think the most important is... We have to prioritise life above everything else. And by life, that can mean biodiversity, humans, wildlife. But really begin seeing the importance of the individual above what our governments prioritise at the moment, which is GDP and which is development. And the second thing I think we have to fight for is humanity. Mm. Not the, the species, but the thing within everyone Um, because once again the way that society is built is almost in the western world actually trying to teach us to individualize and prioritize ourselves and I think it's important that we we fight for something which is really intrinsically biologically embedded within us as primates and as animals which is the the ability to empathise and to connect with other people and other life forms as well. And the third thing, life and humanity are quite broad, aren't they? They cover almost everything. You could just say sweets if you want, or coffee. Oh, is that what your other guests say? No, 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 no. I mean, people have people have said all sorts of things, actually. I don't like coffee. Um, <laughs> hmm... Can I ask you first, whilst I'm thinking, what your three things are? Um, I believe in fighting for diversity in our culture, that everyone has an equal seat at the table. I think that's really, really important to me, regardless of ethnicity, background, ability, age. I think everyone deserves an equal chance and to be celebrated in culture. I think the second thing that is worth fighting for is democracy. I think we all need to feel like we're being listened to. And I think often the most powerful way of achieving that is by coming together and standing shoulder to shoulder and speaking with a unified voice about whatever it is that you feel passionate about. And I think lastly, I think... It's the third one, which is tricky. It's the third one, isn't it? It's hard because there are so many things like democracy and equality and diversity, but by choosing one, you feel like you're sort of disregarding the others when I think they're all so important. 
I think family is worth fighting for. And I think however you define... With my siblings, it's worth fighting against. <laughs> we fight against each other so much. Well, I think however you define family, because for me, my, my band is my family. I think family extends to whoever you would trust your life with, you know. And I, I think I've, I'm very fortunate to have people in my life that have been there for me at my weakest. You know, I've spent a lot of time in hospitals and I think... Um, I've always the thing that's always got me through that is knowing that there's people that would go to the ends of the earth to see me through those hardships. So I've been incredibly fortunate to have that sense of loving family around me and I think that's something that I believe worth, is worth fighting for. How on earth can I answer after that? <laughs> yeah, I think like your second point you said democracy I think the the recognition of equality and equality in a really broad sense of all people, whoever you are or wherever you come from, but also of voices and the ability to be heard because the system at the moment where we have a very elite, elite sect of voices being listened to and everyone else sort of being disregarded as a huge cause of many problems... And I suppose you could say a stronger democracy, but I think it extends beyond just politics. It's about in daily life we have to have a recognition of the importance of everyone's voices and the value of everyone and all life forms. That encompasses speciesism as well, uh, where we value ourselves over other species. So it's sort of removing ourselves from this pedestal and just taking a look around and recognising, putting ourselves in the shoes of others. That's an amazing third answer. <laughs> Bella, I know we're out of time, so I just want to say thank you for giving us your time so generously. I know our fans and listeners will be deeply inspired by your activism and look forward to following where it takes you next. It's been an absolute pleasure and it means so much to have these conversations. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you so much as well. And I love the album. I love oh, it. <laughs> what song is going with this? It's a song called Wrong Side of the Tracks, which is the last song on the You're album. You're joking. Yeah. It's my favourite one. Is it really? Yeah. Oh. This, I was just listening to it when I was coming in and I was thinking, if they ask me what's my favourite, I'm going to say this one because I love it so much and it's the one I sent to the French people. Oh, wow. And, well, that yeah. song's about young people, you know, changing the world, so... Well, which I'm you're glad. doing. <laughs> well, thank you. So high five. Thank you for listening to episode 9 of Things Worth Fighting For and also to both Noga Levy Rappaport and Bella Lack for sharing their words with me. You'll find all sorts of links down in the show notes related to this episode, including a video of Martin Sheen's full speech at Fire Drill Friday, Bella's TEDx talk and how to follow Noga's work with the UK Student Climate Network. We'll be back very soon with the final episode in this series, so stay tuned. And in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcast app and rate us with a few cheeky stars if you enjoyed the show. It really helps others discover us and join in these conversations. This episode was brought to you by Acast and produced by my sibling in all things Sonic, Mr Matthew Twaits. Cheers, man. And thanks as always to Courtney Aisha Mortimer at UROC for all her help and coordination skills. And now to play you out, we're going to listen to Wrong Side of the Tracks from our new album, A Billion Heartbeats. Stay safe and we'll see you very soon for the final episode of Things Worth Fighting For. Mm-hmm.
There's a world outside your window and it needs your son. Lunatics are reading Bibles and up buying guns. No matter what they say, no matter what you've done, their words ain't worth the paper that they're printed on. Don't let them tie you down, lie and say you're sick. They put you on the pill, but what you got cannot be fixed. Never forget we're not like the other kids. All we ever wanted was to make the needle skip. Tonight, no one can stop them, only me and you. Tonight, no one can stop us, no.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.